Binky, seriously, guy. This is next level script supervision here. Why my keyboard? Is that really so comfortable? Welcome back to Six Degrees of Cats, a podcast about how cats have shaped our past, present, and future. Hello, party peoples. As you know from listening in on Six Degrees of Cats here, I, Captain Kitty, have a rather curious take on the world. And guess the heck what? My curiosity has led me down some really winding, surprising avenues in my life and in my mind, which is perpetually littered with kitties and questions. We have come pretty far investigating so many interesting and surprising connections. But still, what are the relationships among all things feline and human that have yet to be discovered? How have they affected us and how have we affected them? Not infrequently, when explaining this podcast, I've had a lot of people ask me, Yeah, what the heck? The- what? To which I've replied, Is there a question in there? I get it. But the questions I'm, I mean, we are asking and the research we're doing to get to the heart of it are actually very serious science. Very serious. And if you don't take that seriously, well, I have some actual, real, very serious scientists on hand. And they're going to back me up here in this very episode and the next one. In an unprecedented move, we're going to break it up into two parts. In this episode, we'll discuss the common traits between scientists and cats, and how hanging around cats has led to some serious scientific innovation. Cats and science have a long history together, and yet... All things cat are shockingly underdocumented in comparison to other domesticated animals, like, you know, dogs, which is not only a huge injustice to all of feline kind, it's probably one of the reasons we haven't, say, cured the common cold, reversed climate change, stabilized the world economy, and solved world peace. Okay, fine. There may be a tiny bit of hyperbole in there, but in this episode, we'll be speaking to three of the four expert scientists of this two-part series who have helped validate my hypothesis that cats have been, and continue to be, very important catalysts of scientific innovation. Oh yeah, one thing. Before I get too much further in, In this episode, I am not going to talk explicitly about vivisection, or the practice of using live animals in experimentation. I'm all about using what we can to humanely promote scientific discovery. So, in a future episode, we'll be talking much more about kitties and ethics. Not this one, though. Alrighty. Since this is a science-y episode, I think it's important that we all get on the same page here. Any genius can make a bold statement with lots of jargon and throw in a few numbers, but that doesn't make it science. So, 
let's hear from a real genius. <laughs> I don't consider myself a genius by any stretch of the imagination. I just more so identify as somebody that's just really curious and takes their curiosity to the next level where it's like, I'm going to find the answer. I think you also fall in this category. That's why we're here now. <laughs> Gosh, I'm flattered. I'll take it. But enough about me. Back to my extremely humble expert. I'll allow her to introduce herself. My name is Titi Shodia, co-host of Dope Labs podcast, where we show how science intersects with pop culture. I actually have a PhD in mechanical engineering and material science. My master's and PhD are both from Duke University. I feel like I'm more of a material scientist than a mechanical engineer. Which is? Material science is applied chemical engineering. You might learn about, you know, things that are happening on the molecular level and understand structures of chemicals and things like that. But then the materials engineer will take you a step further and say, okay, well, how does this matter in the real world? The materials that you use to make bridges, the materials that we use for our computer screens, all of these things are different. And a material scientist was absolutely a part of that. And what drew Dr. Shodia to this particular field? I want to know how things work. I want to know why we choose to do things a certain way, feeling like there are still additional questions that can be asked here. It's in this spirit that all scientists must work in order to break down an observation, a pattern, or a plain old question they have about how something works in the physical world into something they can describe, measure, and most importantly, produce models that are predictive and as fundamental as possible. So it ties to be predictive. And I mean, the question of how or why, I think he can always dig deeper. It's like the kid that always asks why. There's always going to be another why. That was scientist number two, dialing in from Vienna. My name's Karim Al-Sayed. Um, my pronouns are he. So I work for the Medical University of Vienna. And I run a lab here where we develop optical techniques largely. And we try and understand the physics of the human body. I consider myself generally a physicist and I become more of a biophysicist. I generally study human biology and biological systems in general. And we study a lot of systems. We study everything from plants and to human anatomy to various organisms. So far, we have a material scientist and a biophysicist. And they have something kind of special in common, besides being guests on this podcast, obviously. I love the comparison Dr. El Sayad made about being like a kid. Dr. Shodia mentioned that as well. I think even when I was a kid, I had showed the signs that being a researcher and a scientist was something that I could do well. I mean, I was taking things apart in the house, which, you know, my parents probably were not enjoying, and constantly asking questions and not really just letting things go and say, okay, this is just how it is. You know, science is a great place to feed those curiosities. Curiosity. What's that saying again? Oh, right. Curiosity killed the cat. You know what? Let's get this out of the way right now. It didn't actually kill the cat because that saying isn't actually a thing. According to my research, the phrase curiosity killed the cat 
appears to have been a mutation, of a far earlier expression. Care, killed a cat. Meaning, that excessive worry, rather than inquisitiveness, will lead to harm. The phrase seems to have changed in the 19th century, when curiosity killed the cat, became established as the more famous expression. I think that gives us license to move forward fearlessly, cat friends. No harm will come to us for being inquisitive in this episode, or my name isn't Captain Kitty, which it isn't technically, but anyway. Possessing this trait isn't just incidental. It's a must for any good scientist. I think curiosity is a big one. And this is something that we say on the show all the time. Science isn't everything and science is for everybody. I feel like most people, if not all people, have the capacity to be scientists, willing to ask the questions and find reputable sources and test things out to get to a conclusion. Let's take a moment to review what's called the scientific method. You might vaguely remember that from high school, but let's be real here. Scientific literacy is at an all-time low, so I am not going to assume we are starting from the right understanding. We often think of a scientist in terms of the experiments they perform to answer their questions, so I had Dr. Shodia break this process down for us. The scientific method is just that. It's a method. It's a procedure of starting off with a question that you want answered and working your way to a conclusion. Depending on who you ask, they might say that there are five steps. Some people say that there are seven steps. I usually just say the first one is to observe something. And so in that observation, it makes you ask a question. Then you do research to figure out what is already out there about that topic. Then you create a hypothesis, which is a guess, essentially, about a certain aspect of that topic and say, I think if I do A, then B will happen. Or I think if I remove A, then C will happen. Then the next step is to test it with some type of experiment. Once you have the results from that experiment, then you analyze the data and once you analyze the data, then you can report your conclusions. Was your hypothesis correct? Was your hypothesis incorrect? I think one of the most exciting things about science is that, well, it's pattern detecting, which is kind of what I do all the time on this podcast. And there are a couple ways of going about it. As Dr. Elsayad explained... Yeah, it's looking for patterns. I guess that's part of the method. And a lot of science is also what you call hypothesis-driven, where people have sort of some kind of hypothesis and then they try and prove it and or disprove it. And then they modify it or come up with a new one, depending on what the result is. But there's also a lot of what you call blue sky science, where it's basically, you know, let's just try something and see what happens, then work backwards and try and explain it. And so I think both are part of the scientific method. Both have their merits. I mean, I think... One needs to go at it from both directions. Something just occurred to me. Let me get back to you after the break. Be 
Before the break, we deconstructed the key traits of a scientist. No, not good looks and a sparkling personality, though, of course, my guests certainly possess those traits, but curiosity and a willingness to experiment. Given what Dr. Shodia had said about everybody being a scientist, well, I have a hypothesis about cats. I think they're scientists. You know, when they test you to see what'll happen when they knock things over, I think they're running an experiment. They're like collecting enough data to draw conclusions. And I'm not alone in this observation. I find them very fascinating for the fact that you can really watch them watch you do something. You can kind of see in their eyes that they're, they work us all very well, like Most of my cats have all figured out the different ways to wake me up most efficiently in the morning if they want some food. Trying to figure out somehow what's going on. I had a cat that once loved to watch the toilet drain, and one night I woke up to find her pawing at the toilet handle because she was trying to figure out exactly how to make it flush. And I've only had one cat ever try to do that. That'll stick with me forever. That was Dr. Greg Gaber, our third scientist of this episode. I'm professor of physics and optical science at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. I'm online as Dr. Skyskull on Twitter and a few other things. He also literally wrote the book on physics and cats. I have a couple of books out there that are popular science. One is Falling Felines and Fundamental Physics on the History of Falling Cats and the Science of It. And the other is Invisibility on the History and Science of People Trying to Make Things Invisible. Dr. Gaber's field is distinct to Dr. Shodia's and Dr. Elsayad's field, even though he, like them, is a physicist. I'll leave it to him to explain his work. Originally, I was a experimental particle physicist, so I was actually trying to do research on fundamental laws of nature. And when I reached grad school, though, I ended up being swayed away by my future PhD advisor, Emil Wolf, into studying the behavior of light and optics. As in lighting up stuff? Optical physics is really focused on the behavior of light and the applications of that to various um, well, applications, really. So... Optics is really the study of how does light behave and what can light do and what can't it do. And nowadays, it's also evolved into how can we kind of force light to do whatever we want it to do. How did an optical physicist come to write about falling cats? Lights, camera, action, and cats. Up until 1894, physicists had concluded that when a cat starts falling, it must push off of something to get itself spinning and rotating so it can land on its feet. Because their argument was, if it's in free fall and it's not rotating, it can't just spontaneously rotate. And then a French physiologist who was doing high-speed photography, Etienne Jules Marais, presented photographs that showed a cat falling at first without any rotation and just seemingly magically flipping over to land on its feet. This, in fact, shocked the scientific community at the time. And one of my favorite quotes of the era of the original discussion at a scientific meeting was one physicist said that Professor Mary had presented them with 
uh, a paradox directly in contradiction with known scientific principles. Wait, does this have something to do with buttered toast falling buttered side down on the ground? Did I get that right, actually? Well, the one thing is that people have seen, I think, the videos hypothesizing that if you taped a cat to a a buttered piece of bread, that you could kind of keep it rotating endlessly because the cat would always want to land on its feet and the toast would always want to land butter side down. The one big difference in the problem is that the piece of toast is light enough and flat enough that it tends to experience sort of wind resistance as it's falling. And the cat, on the other hand, is heavy enough that there's not significant wind resistance by the time the cat hits the ground, unless it falls from a very big height. Which I hope never happens, ever, ever. And we certainly discourage everybody from at-home experimentation. I even put in my book, please don't drop your cats. There are plenty of videos online now, so you can look it up. Anyway, back to the physics of safely landing kitties, thanks to something called the writing reflex. So the writing reflex is all about how a cat instinctively knows how to bend and twist its body so that it can touch down and land properly on its feet. What's the trick? There are very few animals that seem to have this writing reflex. So the cat's maneuver is all more about how it bends and twists and contorts its body to achieve the desired rotation. Here's where the photography comes in. In the early physics days, around 1894, what happened is high-speed photography was invented. And at that time, people had just learned about the idea of conservation of angular momentum. That's a physics law that says, basically, if one thing twists clockwise, something else has to twist counterclockwise to balance out. There's this conservation of rotation. High-speed photography allowed a slow-motion capture of what cats seem to be doing mid-air naturally. The most prominent theory nowadays about how a cat does it, and I think it's pretty much confirmed, is what people would call the bend-and-twist model. So we've said that there's this conservation of angular momentum, so that if something rotates clockwise, something else has to rotate counterclockwise. Well, the thing is with a cat... It's not a rigid body. It can bend its body and twist different parts of its body in different directions. And the most extreme way to picture the bend and twist model is imagine the cat completely folds at the waist and picture the front and back halves of its bodies as two cylinders and now rotate those two cylinders in opposite directions. (laughs) And if you make a 180 degree rotation of those cylinders and straighten out the body again, the body's now going to be right side up where it was upside down. So it's a bend of the body at the waist, rotate the body sections in opposite directions 180 degrees, and open up again. And because those body sections are rotating in opposite directions, the angular momentum is conserved and is all perfectly fine. So the cat sort of naturally has figured out how to do that rotation without needing any extra angular momentum to do the rotation. Neat. And obviously of deep personal interest to me, 
and hopefully you, dear listener, that these physicists, informed by a sense of curiosity, pursued this specific scientific investigation. Cool discovery. But how is this writing reflex relevant to humans? At the surface, it uh, kind of feels like fluff. But this information has a wide range of practical application. In early days of space exploration, NASA and Air Force researchers were saying, if a cat can flip over without having anything to push off of, we need to be able to teach people in a weightless environment to do that. Researchers have actually trained uh, gymnasts and divers to perform the same bend and twist maneuver. In the most recent years, it's been um, all about robotics and how can we train a robot to do what a cat does. You know, cats are more than just research subjects to scientists. Cats are also great lab partners. Sir Isaac Newton loved his cat, Spithead, so much that he invented the cat door. It's not confirmed that he actually did do that, and I don't think there's any record of him having a cat, but, you know, it's plausible. I kind of tracked down the story, and it seems like the earliest telling of the story that Isaac Newton invented the cat door was like probably a hundred years after he had left, I believe it was Cambridge where he was. So people knew the house that he had lived in and saw that the house that he had lived in had a cat door, and so they said, well, Isaac Newton probably put that there. I guess the name of the cat in the story alone shouldn't have made it past the sniff test. But maybe he still liked cats. I mean, could it have been a cat that jumped down from the tree? You know, the one that the apple fell from that led to Newton's discovery of gravity. Also, a famous legend, there's no confirmation that it's true. But we keep telling the story because it's a great story. So we can't say it's not true, but... (laughs) All right, forget Newton. Who actually did like cats back then? There are a lot of scientists who have cats, and there have been famous scientists who've had cats as companions, too. I think the one story I remember is Edwin Hubble, who uh, the Hubble telescope is named after. Later in his life, when he was getting frailer, his uh, wife got him a cat companion who he would always say is helping him with his work. Aw, the cat's name was Nicholas. Nicholas Hobble. Anyone else of note? There's also William Rowan Hamilton, who is a giant and theoretical physicist, an Irish astronomer and physicist and mathematician. When he was young, he was really known for his love of animals. He had cats. Here's a great quote. I never saw so polite a gentleman as your brother. I think he would almost bow to a cat. It was noted uh, by his sister that he would often be seen writing mathematical notes with a kitten or a cat on his shoulder trying to bat at the pen while he wrote. I bet they were coaching him through those solutions. In all seriousness, when you're hitting a wall after writing for hours or trying to debug that code or do mental math, 
There's nothing more helpful than talking to your cat. Those cats were great listeners, but here's a cat who was a true lab assistant. There was an optical scientist named Robert Williams Wood who lived from like the 1860s to the 1950s. And one of the things that he did research-wise was spectroscopy, the breaking up of light into different colors. He used a very long tube as a spectroscope. So this tube was at his summer house. When they'd go there over the summer, the tube would always be filled with like cobwebs from neglect. One of the things they would do is send the family cat down the tube just to clear out all the cobwebs by walking from one end to the other. The glamorous life of a lab assistant. Two of the most famous scientists who loved kitties included, well, Einstein, as an Al, who was a known fan of cats. And of course, let's not forget Nikola Tesla and his family cat, Machak, which means cat in Croatian. He even wrote about static electricity in Machak's fur in a letter to the public about his work. There are certainly more stories like this, but I ran out of time to quiz Dr. Gaber on the other cat worshippers in science. Thankfully, he has a whole chapter in his book. I debated reading the entire thing aloud in this episode, but if you'd like that, hit me up and we can have story time with Captain Kitty. Anywho... I rest my case that cats and scientists have a special affinity here. As we've heard, they're not only catalysts of scientific innovation, but they've been partners and possibly scientists themselves. Untapped potential here. I'm calling it now. The cure to the common cold? The key to world peace? Stabilizing the economy to eradicate poverty? There's a cat behind that. Call it a hypothesis. Friends, the fun does not stop here. While we've certainly traveled several degrees across various subjects in science, we'll be continuing on the case of the curious cats next week. And we'll meet our fourth scientist, whose preliminary findings have brought peace to homes far and wide. I want to thank my wonderful experts, C.T. Shodia, Karina Zayed, and Greg Gabor. While the opinions are my own, the research and work is theirs. If you'd like to learn more about them or by their book in Dr. Gaber's case, please check out our show notes, which also include the references and research that went into this episode. If you loved it, please do give us a top rating and a review with a fun cat or science fact. And tell all your friends about Six Degrees of Cats. Heal the world. Thanks again, folks. I appreciate you. We are all scientists, and everything is connected. Six Degrees of Cats is produced, written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Captain Kitty, a.k.a. Amanda B. Please subscribe to our mailing list by visiting tinyurl.com slash sixdegreesofcats or find us on all those social media platforms. And for my paid subscribers you'll have access to the extra audio with more deep dives by our experts. This and all episodes are dedicated to the misunderstood, the marginalized, the resilient, and the weird. And, of course, all the cats we've loved and lost.
Yeah. So my most recent book is on invisibility. And even though it's not mainly focused on cats, there was one scientific paper that came out that features an invisibility cloak, a crude cloak large enough to hide a cat in it. So I kind of worked really hard to make sure I could get that image of a cat into my invisibility book. And I'm going to try for every book that I write in the future to include at least one cat picture in the book. 